One of the most fascinating aspects of biblical and theological study, in my opinion, is the subject of textual criticism, or as it is sometimes called, lower criticism. Textual criticism is the study of ancient biblical manuscripts to determine the most accurate reading of a given passage of Scripture. You see, when the books of the Bible were originally written, they were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the result was a flawless, inerrant text. However, those original manuscripts were not preserved. In the providence of God, they were not preserved, but they were copied. Therefore, what we have today is a collection of ancient Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, as well as Latin and other languages. There are no originals in existence today. Understand that. There are no originals in existence today. In other words, we don't have the actual letter Paul wrote to the Romans, or the actual letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, or the actual letter that the Apostle John wrote that we now call 1 John, or, or any of the other books of the Bible. We don't have the originals. God chose not to preserve them, and we can speculate that one of the reasons why is because God knows that many people would end up worshiping the actual documents instead of worshiping the Lord himself. That was probably what was behind the fact that God didn't allow the body of Moses to be retained for burial. God buried him himself, knowing the tendency of the children of Israel to worship some external tangible thing, and God prohibited that from happening. So we have no originals today, but people did copy the original books of the Bible, and others copied those copies, and others copied those copies, and so on for quite some time. As a result, we have many copies and manuscripts of all portions of the Bible. Now there is nothing in Scripture that guarantees that every Tom, Dick, or Harry who made a copy of a section of Scripture copied with flawless accuracy. That is why all the ancient manuscripts don't read exactly the same. Sometimes a word is left out, and sometimes two words are reversed, such as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus or things like that. If you have ever copied something by hand or retyped a document, you know, you're looking at it and you're retyping it on your computer or typewriter or whatever, then you understand how that happens. You're I skip a word or skip down a line, that type of thing. Of, co of course, there is much, much, much less of this in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament because almost all the copies are made by professionals known as scribes. But the New Testament was often copied by anybody and everybody who was trying to get the word out to friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers, etc., so most of these little textual discrepancies we have are found in the New Testament. At this point in the discussion, this is where a lot of Christians get really nervous. They had no idea that there are wording discrepancies in some of the ancient manuscripts. And when they hear that, they are concerned that it makes the Bible unreliable. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. We don't have time to develop this subject in detail this morning, but if you are interested or concerned 
I would strongly encourage you to pick up a copy of the little book titled The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? Written by F.F. Bruce. He does a masterful job demonstrating that the Bible, and specifically his focus is the New Testament, is far more reliable than any other ancient historical work whose authenticity is never questioned by scholars or by anyone in general population. The point is that there is absolutely no reason to question the reliability and the authenticity of the Word of God. But this doesn't mean that all the manuscripts read exactly the same, which is why there is the discipline of textual criticism. Comparing the manuscripts and noticing that in six of them, for example, it reads Jesus Christ, but in one it happens to read Christ Jesus, and it's pretty easy to ascertain that the writer read ahead and just flip-flopped the end, uh, the, the Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, and we have no problem. Textual criticism examines any textual discrepancies to determine the correct reading, and this work is a highly accurate science. Once again, I wish we had the time to develop this further, but it would take all our time and more to give a thorough explanation. But the reason why I am saying all of this is because there is a textual discrepancy in the text to which we come this morning. You will notice it as soon as I read it, depending on what translation of the Bible you have with you this morning. It is found in 1 John chapter 5. Let's turn there together. 1 John <coughs> chapter 5. Please follow along as I read verses 1 through 9, although we already covered the first five verses last Lord's Day. But to get the flow of the text, I want us to begin reading in verse 1. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and by blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and by blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. If you remember what we saw in the last message, the Apostle John explained in the opening verses of this chapter that overcomers, victors, winners, are those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 1 says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And verse 5 says, who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Overcomers, victors, winners in God's eyes 
are those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The term Christ is a reference to the promised Messiah of Hebrew Scripture, and the phrase Son of God is a title of deity. So John, over, John describes overcomers, John describes victors, winners, as those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and believe that he is God in human flesh. That's what we believe as Christians. Now John answers the question, what is the evidence to back up our belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? What is the evidence? To answer that question, John sets forth two kinds of evidence, or two categories of witness. External witness and internal witness. Another way to say it would be to say objective witness and subjective witness. Verses 6 through 9, our text for this morning, set forth external objective witness. And verses 10 through 12 set forth internal subjective witness. This is clearly John's theme in this section of his letter because he uses some form of the word witness or testimony nine times in these verses. Nine times. The repetition is meant to get our attention, to capture our attention. Contrary to popular opinion, God does not expect us to have blind faith. Our faith is based on facts. Our faith is based on historical certainties. Our faith is based on truth. For example, when the Apostle John wrote his gospel account, he specifically chose to record seven signs, seven miraculous works Jesus performed in his earthly ministry. According to John 20, 30, and 31, those seven signs were recorded by John as evidence to convince people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is why John wrote his Gospels. That is what he specifically states in John 20, 30, and 31. He wrote to give proof or evidence so people would believe. That is another indication that God does not expect people to exercise blind faith. Along these same lines, Jesus said in John 5, 36, But I have a greater witness than John's, referring to John the Baptist, I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. In other words, Jesus was saying, My works prove that I came from heaven. I am God. In John 10.25, he said, The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. In John 10.37 and 38, he said, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. That's fair, is it not? If I don't do the works of my Father, don't believe that I came from the Father and I am equal with the Father. But if I do, he says, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in him. In other words, Jesus was saying this. If I can't back up my claims with evidence, don't believe me. But you have no reason to refuse to believe me because I do back up my claims with evidence. I give proof. I give validation. 
You see, beloved, we are called to believe the truth as it is factually and historically set forth in Scripture. That is what John is getting at here in verses 6 through 9. If you want to enter into into the emotion of this text or the feeling of this text, you need to picture in your mind a courtroom scene. John is going to call three witnesses to the stand. He is going to call three witnesses to the stand to testify that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the Christ, the Son of God. But these three witnesses are not just John's witnesses, as he will tell us at the end of this section. These are God's witnesses to testify. With that in mind and with that as background, let's consider this text together to see how it unfolds from the pen of John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 6, This is he, referring to the last phrase in verse 5, Jesus, the Son of God, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. Here in this verse, John lists three of the most compelling witnesses that verify The human Jesus is the promised Messiah and the Son of the living God. Let me remind you that the word Christ is not a name. Most of us in the West think of it that way. I don't mean just in the Western U.S., the Western part of the world. Many people wrongly believe that the word Christ is Jesus' last name. Christ is not a name. It's a title that means Messiah. So when you see the words Jesus Christ, this is to be a good training for you in your Bible reading. When you see the words Jesus Christ in your Bible, you should think Jesus the Messiah. That's what it's saying. And when you see the words Christ Jesus in your Bible, you should train yourself to think Messiah Jesus. Because that's what it's saying. Also, when you see the phrase the Son of God in Scripture... You should think deity or divinity or equality with God the Father, not someone who is less than the Father. In John chapter 10, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And the Jewish leaders tried to stone him to death because they thought he was being blasphemous. And you know what? They were right. If Jesus really isn't equal with God the Father in deity, because the title, the Son of God, is a title of deity. This is what Jesus claimed. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and he claimed to be the Son of God, or God in human flesh. What was the evidence to back up his claims? What is the evidence? Well, there are many pieces of evidence that could be set forth to back up his claims. His virgin birth was proof of his identity. His sinless life was proof of his identity. He said one time in John 8, in an argument with the Jewish leaders, which of you convinces me or can point out any sin in my life? That's a remarkable statement. There's not a one of us in the room that would have the audacity to say that to someone. Can you point out any sin in my life? Oh, yes, plenty. Plenty. 
But Jesus said, which of you convicts me of sin? There's none. You can't point out any sin in my life. Anything I ever did that was wrong, said that was wrong, thought that was wrong. His unmatched words were proof of his identity. His transfiguration was proof of his identity. His resurrection from the dead was proof of his identity. All of those pieces of evidence could be set forth as proof that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But those aren't specifically the ones that John mentions in this text. He mentions the water, the blood, and the Spirit. Why does John list those three, and what does he mean by them? When was the first time that the Father and the Holy Spirit specifically and explicitly testified to the fact of who Jesus is? It was at his baptism. Go back to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, the very first book of the New Testament, the first Gospel record, Matthew, chapter 3. Notice verse 13. We read, then, this is Matthew 3, 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan, the Jordan River, to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God chose this occasion right at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus to to publicly affirm that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. You will remember that the word Messiah means anointed one. So when the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, came upon him, it it pictured the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This was the Holy Spirit anointing Jesus for his messianic ministry. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, we are told that he did what he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke is especially the one gospel writer who emphasizes this point. Jesus did what he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. Although he was God, he functioned most of the time like a man. So he ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit, and this is the Holy Spirit's anointing for that purpose. But there was also another purpose in this event. Keep in mind that the primary theological emphasis of Hebrew Scripture, the primary theological emphasis of the Old Testament, is that there is only one true God. Hebrew Scripture reiterates that time and time and time again. God repeated that over and over because His people lived in the midst of polytheistic peoples. The people of Israel lived in the midst of surrounding nations that believed in a multiplicity of gods. There was a rain god and a fertility god and a fire god and all of these others. So it was extremely important for God to emphasize that in reality there is only one true God and that one true God is Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
Monotheism was the cornerstone truth for the Jewish people. And it still is to this day, which is a barrier for them understanding the trinity or triunity of God. Monotheism was the key theological truth of Hebrew Scripture. That is why God said very little in the Old Testament times about the triunity of His being. It would have surely led the people to believe that there are three gods, but there aren't three gods. There is only one God, and this one God is composed of three distinct persons. That reality is hinted at in Hebrew Scripture, but it is never really spelled out in clear, unmistakable terms. God's perfect wisdom knew what the right timing would be. The delineating of that doctrine of the triunity of God or the Trinity was something that was reserved for the New Testament era. And since the coming and ministry of Jesus is the beginning of the New Covenant or the New Testament era, God chose this occasion, right here in Matthew 3, God chose this occasion to begin revealing that truth in more explicit terms. Verse 17 says, Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This voice from heaven was obviously the voice of God the Father. He spoke from heaven, and by doing so he affirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. When God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, that was clearly an attestation or affirmation that Jesus was the Messiah. Let me explain how. Those who knew the Messianic passages of Hebrew Scripture would have known Psalm 2-7. It was one of the key verses among the Jewish people, sort of like some of our key verses of the New Testament, like John 3-16 or Revelation 3-20 or some of these verses that most Christians know. Psalm 2-7, which says, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So here the crowd hears this voice saying, this is my beloved son. Psalm 2-7 would have immediately come to mind. In addition, Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. That verse also would have exploded in the minds of the people who knew it and then heard these words in verse 17. Isaiah 42.1 prophesied that God would delight in His chosen one and He would put His Spirit upon Him. Well, that's exactly what verse 17 says. To make sure people made the connection, God put the Holy Spirit upon Jesus in the form of a dove and then God spoke saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How could anyone who was looking for the Messiah, waiting for, anticipating the Messiah, and who knew Isaiah 42.1 have missed the connection. They couldn't miss it. There's no way they could miss it. Which is exactly what God wanted. God the Father was affirming in verse 17 here with this statement that Jesus is the Messiah. But there's more here to verse 17. When God the Father spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son. He was saying something that would take the Jewish believers of the first century quite a while to grasp. They didn't get it at first. It took them a while to get it. 
He was not only saying that Jesus was the Messiah. He was also saying that Jesus was divine. Jesus was deity. Jesus was not only genuine humanity, he was also genuine deity. For God the Father to refer to Jesus as his Son is to say that Jesus is also divine. Jesus is genuine deity. This was not, and let me emphasize that point, this was not something that was a part of the understanding of the Jewish people concerning their Messiah. I think it would be safe to assume that no Jewish person believed their Messiah would be divine. The reason I say that is because, as I mentioned earlier, the foundational and core truth of Judaism is the fact that there is only one true God. That had been drilled into their heads for centuries. Therefore, they could not conceive of a man, their Messiah, being divine. That that just didn't compute with them. That didn't register with them. That was not on their radar. They knew their Messiah would be righteous. They knew he would be anointed. They knew he would be just and powerful and miraculous and holy. But they didn't think for a moment he would be divine. But here, God the Father begins the education process. This man, Jesus, was not merely a man. He is the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. That is why John says in 1 John 5, 6, that one of the witnesses... Of the identity of Jesus is the water. God chose the baptism of Jesus to reveal this monumental truth. That's witness number one that John has called to the stand. But John also mentioned blood in our text in 1 John 5 as another witness. To what does that refer? That refers to the death of Jesus. Turn over to chapter 27 of Matthew's Gospel. Same book, same Gospel account, but near the end, chapter 27. Notice verse 45. I'll begin reading there. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, and the reckoning of time here would begin at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour would be noon, Right, right at noon, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, that would be noon till 3 p.m., right there in the heart of the day, right in the middle of the afternoon. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. This is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. 
God put his exclamation point on the death of his son in three ways. At the end of three hours of eerie darkness, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. There was a massive earthquake, and the graves around Jerusalem were busted open. No wonder the centurion said what he did in verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. The eerie darkness followed by the massive earthquake got their attention. In addition, they surely had to notice the difference between the way Jesus behaved throughout the crucifixion in comparison to how other victims of crucifixion reacted or responded to their treatment. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten. In the midst of his horrific suffering, he thought about others. For example... In Luke 23, 34, he prayed for the soldiers who were carrying out the crucifixion. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In John 19, 26, he arranged for the care of his mother. In Luke 23, 43, he granted salvation to the repentant thief on the cross who was next to him. All these things had an impact on the centurion and on the soldiers. Great fear fell upon them as they realized this was the Son of God. This wasn't just another victim of crucifixion. They had crucified many, almost certainly. This was just routine for them. That's why they gambled for the clothes. This was just something they did, and all of a sudden it hit them between the eyes. This man that we crucified was no mere man. This was the Son of God. This was a second major event that identified Jesus for who he truly is. And John sums up this experience with the word blood, which points to Jesus' death. By the way, as a little side note here, it was, it was extremely important for John to mention this event because they were, there was a heresy in his day that said the Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism but left him before his death. It was a very common, popular, cultic teaching in John's day when he wrote 1 John. John countered that heresy by saying Jesus Christ came not only by water, but by water and blood. The Christ didn't leave Jesus before his death. Now back to our text in 1 John chapter 5. So John says here in verse 6 that these are two of the potent witnesses set forth to testify that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The water, that is his baptism, the blood, his death. But John also mentions a third witness. At the end of verse 6 he says, And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. When or how did the Spirit bear witness to the identity of Jesus? Well, as we just saw in Matthew 3, the Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism to identify him as the Messiah. But that wasn't the only witness given by the Spirit. 
Jesus performed many of his miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why he told the Pharisees that they had blasphemed the Holy Spirit when they said he did his miracles by the power of Satan. They were taking what the Spirit enabled him to do and attributing it to, attributing it to Satan, and Jesus said that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So the miracles of Jesus were a witness from the Holy Spirit concerning the identity of Jesus. Acts 10.38 says, God, quote, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Luke 4.14 tells us that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. In Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the prophet predicted that the Messiah would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Luke 4 tells us that Jesus read that passage in the synagogue of his hometown, Nazareth, and he claimed those verses applied directly to him. So the Holy Spirit testified the identity of Jesus in many different ways, beginning with the Holy Spirit's work in the conception of Mary and going all the way to the end of Jesus' life. The Holy Spirit is the third witness that John has called to the stand to testify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The first witness was the baptism of Jesus. The second witness was the death of Jesus. The third witness was the Holy Spirit himself who was involved in Jesus' conception and empowered Jesus to perform miracles as proof that his messianic claims and his claims of deity were valid. Those are the three witnesses. As I said earlier, John could have called many witnesses to the stand, as it were, but he chose those three. Verse 7 says, 1 John 5, 7, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Some of you are wondering what I just read. Because your Bible doesn't read anything like that. The New American Standard Bible, the ESV, and the NIV simply read, For there are three that testify. But the King James Version and the New King James Version says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. This is the textual issue that I mentioned all the way back at the beginning of the message. Certainly it is true that the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit are one. There's no doubt about that. There, there are multiple passages in Scripture that present that truth, which is called the doctrine of the Trinity or the, the triunity of God. However, this extended phrase in the King James Version and New King James Version is not found in any early Greek manuscripts, and it doesn't appear until approximately the 10th, century A.D. That's 1,000 years after John wrote this letter. There are four very late manuscripts that have the phrase in the margin as a later edition. Since these words were not in the early manuscripts, that would explain why no Greek or Latin father, even those involved in Trinitarian controversies, quote these words. Now think about that. If this phrase was really in John's letter when he wrote it, this would have been quoted a lot 
down through the centuries by people who were explaining the doctrine of the Trinity and defending the doctrine of the Trinity, but we don't find any of those quotes. None. The verse is never quoted, never quoted in the controversies over the Trinity in the first 450 years of the church era. Never. Not even once. So how did this phrase end up in the King James Version, in the New King James Version? We know it was common practice for those who copied manuscripts, for friends, family members, whoever, to write explanatory notes in the margin. We have many examples of that in the manuscripts that exist today, and it is safe to conclude that that is what took place in this situation. Someone who was copying this passage wrote this explanatory note, which is true, but was probably not a part of John's letter when he first wrote it. Therefore, verse 7 would actually read, For there are three that bear witness, or there are three that testify. It's significant that John mentions three because the Old Testament law required the testimony of two or three witnesses to establish the truth of a particular matter. That was something that was known. That was just something that was inherent in the, their, their system. We see examples of this in Deuteronomy 17.6. We see an example of this in Deuteronomy 19.15. So it's as if John is saying this. Listen. We know that the Old Testament law required two or three witnesses to establish the truth of something. And that is why I have called three witnesses to the stand to verify that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 8, And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. The first phrase of this verse in my version, and there are three that bear witness on the earth, is part of the marginal note I just explained a moment ago. It was probably not part of John's letter when he originally wrote it, but it was placed in the margin of a copy somewhere along the way, and it ended up in the manuscripts that were used to translate the King James Version and the New King James Version. That is why the ESV, the NASB, and the NIV simply say the Spirit and the water and the blood and the three are in agreement. These three witnesses all agree that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit proved this by descending upon Jesus at his baptism and by empowering him to perform miracles throughout his ministry. The baptism of Jesus proved this because the Father spoke from heaven and said it. He stated it. The death of Jesus proved this because God put his exclamation point on the death of his son by ripping the veil of the temple from top to bottom and by shaking the earth violently and by splitting open the graves around Jerusalem. These are divine witnesses, not merely human witnesses. So John closes his court case, if you will, by adding verse 9. Here's his summary statement. He rests his case with this. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. Let me paraphrase that. John is basically saying this. We believe human witnesses, when their testimony agrees and is validated and confirmed, if we believe human witnesses... 
Why would we not believe the witness of God himself? God's witness is far greater than any human witness. And these are three of the most potent ways God the Father testified of his Son at his baptism, by his death, and through the Holy Spirit. And with that, John rests his case. Those are the external, objective witnesses. This, as he says here in verse 9, this is God's testimony of his Son. It is greater than any human testimony in that it, is, it has greater trustworthiness and it has greater importance or greater significance. God's testimony is never wrong. God's testimony is never misleading. It is always and altogether trustworthy. Furthermore, it is greater in importance than any issue you and I will ever face in life or eternity. If you don't believe God's testimony, you are basically calling God a liar and you are damning yourself for eternity. So I ask you this morning, do you believe God's testimony of his son? Do you really believe it? I'm not, I'm not talking about mere intellectual assent where you'll say, oh, sure, yeah, I, I, I believe, I will acknowledge that. I'm talking about the kind of belief that surrenders to the Lord Jesus as master. If he is Messiah and the Son of God, he is worthy of our devotion. Surrender to him today. Let's bow together in closing. As you bow your head and close your eyes to think about what you have seen this morning in God's precious word, you have seen with your eyes and heard with your ears God's testimony. As I said, this is basically a courtroom scene. John is saying, what is the evidence that proves Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? What, what witnesses can we call to the stand to verify? And John calls three. The baptism of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit himself. All three are in agreement. All three testify. All three affirm Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the living God. Do you believe God's testimony? Really believe it. Not, not intellectual assent. Believe it from the depth of your heart. The kind of belief that surrenders to Jesus as Lord. If you have never done that, I would urge you this very moment, right where you are seated, to believe what God has said. That this is His Son. He is worthy of being followed. Follow him. Surrender to him today. Father, as we look at your word again, we are, we are encouraged that you have called us to faith that is not a blind faith. Not just to believe something simply because we're told to believe it, but we are exhorted to believe based on facts, based on truth, based on historical certainties. And we believe humans. Most of us in this room have been involved in some type of legal proceeding involving witnesses and testimony. And we believe human witnesses when their testimony agrees and when it's validated and confirmed. So how foolish of us to believe human witnesses and yet not believe or doubt you and the witnesses that you set forth. These are your witnesses. 
These are your witnesses of who your son really is. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. He is your son, God in human flesh. And that is why he deserves to be believed and followed as Lord and Master. Father, I pray for anyone who has gathered here this morning. Surely in a crowd this size there are some who have not surrendered to your Son, Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit do his continuing, ongoing work of conviction to bring them to the point where they will believe you, not just mental assent or intellectual assent, but believe you from the depth of their soul and follow your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.